You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Join us as we focus on learning about dyslexia this October. Today, we'll be talking to Carolyn Strom about three misconceptions about how the brain learns how to read. Misconception one, reading is taught, not caught. Misconception two, we map words, we don't memorize them. Misconception three, the idea that reading clicks without practice. What's wrong with practice? Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we're so excited because we are here with a guest who's going to tell us about three misconceptions about how the brain learns how to read. Yep. So we have a Carolyn Strom here today, who is a professor in the education department at New York University, and she's an early literacy expert who I actually got to see present at the Reading League last year, the conference, and she made this really tough topic really easy to understand. So I'm very excited to talk to her today. So welcome, Carolyn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah. So we wanted to jump right in because just like us, you were a teacher um, and you know, not, not all the time when you have a professor of education were they necessarily a teacher in the classroom. So we're really curious about how you went from a classroom teacher to becoming interested in studying so specifically how the brain learns to read. Um, so yeah, I started my career as a first grade teacher in Compton, California. Um, and anyone that's taught first grade knows that reading is the thing, right? We really want kids reading by by the end of first grade. Um, and I really fell in love with the process of teaching reading. I was lucky enough to um, have an explicit phonics program, Open Court at the time. California had this mandate around Open Court. Um, and my kids were reading. And it is, is a really amazing experience being the first grade teacher, having kids transform into readers, Um so I fell in love with it. That's really what kept me in the classroom for about 10 years. Um, and during that time, obviously went to tons of PD and tons of, and, and I had a master's degree, but I realized that after several years of teaching, um, I didn't really understand what was going on in the brain, even though I was teaching kids to read, right? I was doing all the things and my kids were readers and I felt like a, a strong teacher. But when a mom actually said to me, I see my kid working so hard, right? To sound out a word what is going on, right? I see him staring at these words, sounding them out, what's happening in the brain. And I, I couldn't tell the parent. I didn't know, even though I knew how to teach reading. It would, it would, I would have been making it up. I, I realized that after all these hours of PD and a master's degree, I knew how to teach reading well, but I didn't really know what was going on inside the brain. Um, and that, that felt, um, that, that just didn't feel right to me in terms of like a professional base. Um, and that's what, why I decided to go to graduate school and get a PhD and sort of really understand the research about how kids learn to read. Yeah, but probably true for most teachers, right? That they know the moves to make in the classroom, but I, I couldn't have said what was happening in the brains of my students when they were learning for sure. Right. And when you, when you begin to understand really how something works, like how a system works, then you can figure out what's not, uh, what's not working, right? You know, sort of the mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really feel like I understood the mechanisms and that, that even became clear when I was um, working a lot with dyslexic students. 
right after during my graduate work. And I was like, I wouldn't have been able, I don't feel like I would have been able to do that if I didn't have a deeper understanding of how the brain learns to read and why sort of the sound processing is so important. And where, you know, so there's a lot there. It's so rich. And I think that sometimes the, the neuroscience especially is, is really dense. Um, and written for people with a background in neuroscience. And uh, I don't believe that educators and families necessarily need a deep background in neuroscience. They just need to understand like the basics of what's going on in the brain in the same way uh, that we would want our physical therapist to understand anatomy, right? It's, it's just understanding a little bit of what's going on inside. That really intrigued me, still intrigues me to this day, you know. Yeah, I think as we dive into like what's going on inside the brain, you highlighted in our pre-call, three misconceptions about how the brain learns to read. And I think you just put them so clearly that you're right. Like, even though I don't have a background in um, neuroscience, I can still understand what you're sharing. Is there a way to um, kind of just start off with the first misconception and then we will ask you questions that pop up along the way, but maybe if you could start with that first misconception and, and just kind of explain to us, what is what are some misconceptions about how the brain learns how to read? So I've encountered these misconceptions over the last, you know, five or 10 years, sort of working with teachers and working in schools on around change and early literacy and realized that a lot of the families and educators had these misconceptions. And that was kind of like where um, some of the misguided practices were coming from, right? Is that they held these sort of misconceptions. Um, and the first one I'm sure we're all very familiar with um, is that reading is natural. So there's this misconception out there that just like kids naturally learn to speak, right, if we immerse them in spoken language, um, then if we immerse them in print, uh, we immerse them with books, then they'll learn to read, right? And that, that's very prevalent. You know, don't push the kid, right? We, we, they, they don't necessarily need instruction. It will come naturally. And that's just simply not true. Learning to speak is very different. Um, than learning to read. And we can see all over the world, millions of people develop spoken language and millions of people don't learn to read, right? Because it doesn't just happen spontaneously. It requires schooling. Um, it requires instruction. Um, and it's, uh, it's a code. It's an invented code. That's what the alphabet is, right? It's these squiggles, lines, and dots that represent sounds uh, that we came up with only five or 6,000 years ago. Right. It's a very new invention. Um, so there's there's just no way that it's it's something that occurs occurs naturally. Um, but what that ends up leading to, if we believe right, that uh, reading is natural and it occurs just like spoken language. And all we need to do is submerge kids in print. Um, then we're really uh, sort of turning away from the importance of explicit instruction. Right. So that's sort of the 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 outcome of this misconception is that we say, oh, it'll occur naturally. Let's wait. Right. Sometimes it's called the wait and see approach or the maturation perspective. They'll just evolve into that. But actually, like that, that just takes away from the from how important um, explicit instruction is. Right. I often say that, you know, reading is taught, not caught. For some kids, it does. It feels like it's caught. Right. But really, for most kids, it must be taught. Um, and that's, if we believe it's natural, then we're not going to believe that, right? Like we, we'll just believe it will be caught. Um, and we don't have the luxury to think like that. That's such an important point that it does actually kind of happen like that for some, some kids, some students, but that's not the norm. <laughs> right. And, and for the kids that it happens with, um, it may be that they 
got a lot informally early on with their phonemic awareness, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And or or their early writing. Like they may have had, it may seem like it just popped on, right? Or clicked. But in fact, there's other things that inputs they got that we d- can't see. Yeah, I just saw an anecdotal story somewhere, probably on social media, where someone said something like that. Like, yeah, their second child just kind of picked it up. They don't know where it came from, but it was actually because they watched a lot of what was going on with their older their older child, like bringing home homework and working with them on things. And they just saw some of those things happening that they picked yes. up on those. <laughs> yes. So it wasn't just a natural thing. It actually still had the input right. from somewhere else. Right, exactly. But I think it's a, it's a romantic um it's a romantic version of, of literacy that like surround kids with books and surround kids with conversation and they'll fall in love with this process and they'll naturally learn to read. And that's just not, it's just not true. We're not wired for this. It's not going to work like that. Um, and it requires, requires structure. What would you say to, to parents or teachers who do say that? Like, Oh, I just turned around and you know, my child can read or, Oh, my child really struggled last year, but they stepped into a classroom this year and it seems like they've really got it. I mean, then I just say more power to you. Like that, it's awesome. Your kid is reading. Your kid is not my concern, honestly. Like I'm concerned about the kids who are not reading and who everyone's saying, oh, you'll just get it. Um, but I, I do say, yeah, it, it may, it's, I say what I said before, like it may seem like that, right? But it's likely that there was actually a lot of phonemic awareness built in somewhere in their life, right? Um, and it, it's, for some kids, that process of building the circuit is easier, right? But for most kids, we need to teach it. And it really doesn't hurt anyone to actually be explicitly teaching and monitoring progress, right? And it, doing sort of very specific moves that, that are going to promote uh, building the reading circuit, because that is what we're doing, right? We're building a circuit. It's not, we don't come with a center uh, for reading. So we got to build it. Yeah. Do you want to dig in a little bit more there? I mean, you've already mentioned several things, but you know, we wanted to ask you about what are the implications here for teachers and for parents? Like what, what do we need to do? If not just, you know, parents hear that all the time, just immerse them and read to them. It'll be great. You know, but what, what does this really mean for parents and especially our teachers of youngest, our youngest students? So of course, like, yes, we want books in the home. We want access to libraries. You do want tons of books, right? And texts. Uh, And you do want to be reading to your kids. And you also want to be pointing out environmental print, right? You also want to sort of make kids not only aware of books, but of print in the environment, stop signs, any kind of signs, the signs at your school, logos, cereal boxes, right? Pointing out the print in the world is definitely important, right? All of that is, I guess, quote unquote, natural, right? Using what is in your environment. And we want to have a print rich environment, of course, but also realize that we need to be explicit, right? And make sure that uh, kids are uh, involved in some kind of instructional program that has a scope and sequence, for example, right? That doesn't just assume kids are going to pick up uh, the letter patterns in our in our environment, right? Because it's not intuitive and it's not natural. So when you're thinking about the instruction your kid is receiving, is there a scope and sequence, right? Is there a plan for progress monitoring? Is there a plan uh, for practice, Right. Are there decodable texts? I mean, I'm getting like super in the weeds here. Right. But like these are like the weeds. Okay, great, great. So you want to you want there to be these these structures, these specific structures uh, involved. Right. Um, And I'm not saying that at three years old, you're doing letters, sound flashcards. Right. That's not that's not what I'm saying. Right. 
but you're following some kind of spoken sequence, scope and sequence around either phonemic awareness, right? And then in awareness of sounds and then moving into letter sounds, there's a plan for writing, right? There's a plan for teaching handwriting. Um, there's a plan for how we handle irregular words, right? So if we take, if we take this misconception that reading is natural and we accept, no, it's not, it needs to be taught. Well, then there's like a whole science of teaching reading, right? And, and that's, that's the biggest implication of accepting that um, we're not wired for reading and it's not, and it's not natural. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think I, I'm hearing both from like, if I'm a teacher at a school, these are things I should be looking for in curriculum, in my training, I should be looking for to have these and if not advocating for them. And same with parents, right? As you're either choosing a school or signing up for a school, like looking and asking for, you know, what is, yes. what is the structure? How is literacy being taught? What's the scope and sequence? Those seem like the right questions to be asking. Yes. And yes. And as you're, as you're speaking, yes, exactly. And as you're speaking, I'm just like, wait, there's a caveat though, right? Because we're talking about early child, we get into talking about early childhood, right? Three to five-year-olds, three to six-year-olds. So there is also the we're not put you don't necessarily need to push right if a kid at, at three years old right for a kid to be reading and writing some kids with certain inputs are going to pick it pick it up at that age but it is okay to be we want to be developmentally appropriate right so the letters and sounds and structures there should be for three and four year olds right but it's going to look different uh, than for five and six year olds does that make sense? Right. It's going to be more, even more playful and more song based and much more phonemic awareness. Um, so when I say prescribed and scope and sequence, uh, I really mean just like a plan, right? A plan that's developmentally appropriate, but that there is a plan, not just a spontaneous, we're going to surround them with print and they're going to begin to pick up how print and sounds work together. That's so funny. I have a four-year-old who just started in pre-K. And the, they sent home a paper that said, what are your goals for your student this year? And I started to go kind of, I was like ready to <laughs> you know, write down all the things of all the letter sounds and this and that. And then at the end, I was like, also like have fun. I want him to have fun. And like, he's a kid still. And I have a four-year-old who just started preschool too. That's so funny. And I've, yes, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you, you know, and Exactly. You do want them to have fun. You want them to have 20 to 30 minutes of some phonemic awareness and letters. Sound. You know, you want you want them to have some of that. But really, you, you do want them to have fun. And it is fun. I mean, that's we'll get into that. But phonics and phonemic awareness is fun. I, I, you know, there's this kind of like dichotomy out there that like, oh, phonics is the boring stuff. It's the mechanics. You got to just get through it to get to the meaning. And like teaching phonics is very fun. Right. You can make it super engaging. <laughs> It's so fun. Kids get so excited, right? When they learn all the tricks of our language and they learn the way it works and it's a pattern, it's a code. So it, it can be fun. It is fun, right? So, and that sort of connects us to some of the other misconceptions, but. Yeah, I mean, I just, I have one last question about it though. If I'm a parent or a teacher listening and I am hearing you say explicit instruction with a systematic scope and sequence, but I'm not sure what that means. Do you have any recommendations? Because I think there's, there's really good stuff out there and there's not so great stuff. So like I, I can start with an example. So I was, I've been seeing all the hubbub about UFly. So I ordered myself a UFly manual, right? And it is very clear in the, if you're reading this UFly manual, exactly what the scope and sequence is. And then I'm also going to say that I live in a district that has Reader's Writer's Workshop. They have the phonics. It's very clear that that that, that phonics program was input 
like kind of like backdated, right? So it was like, so, mm-hmm. okay. So if I'm in a district and I'm seeing like a systematic scope and sequence, I'm, I'm looking mm-hmm. for specific things. And if I'm a parent, I probably have zero idea, right? Who's what I'm looking I mean, for. I'm glad you mentioned you fly. I mean, you fly. So for any school that I work with pretty much, um, you know, we, we either made the transition to you fly or are making the transition to you fly, um, away from some other phonics programs because you fly is so efficient. Um, it's efficient and it's very, it's, it's very much like you can use it tomorrow, right? It's, it's, and there's a tons of support, very easy and, and games. And I mean, a really great social media community, the Facebook Ufly group is wonderful. And so, um, and, and Ufly is basically free you just pay for the teacher's guide, right? So there it's, it's such a great program. And, um, I, I think it's a great model. Yeah. Right. So when I'm thinking about like the one, one of the things I love about Ufly is like, it's 128 lessons. Right. So no matter what great, it's always this, that is like an amazing scope and sequence. We really know how it's organized. Right. And you don't cover all 128 in any grade. Right. There are some you skip. There's a there's an order for each grade. But that's what we mean by a scope and sequence. We know the scope of what's being covered and we know the sequence. All right, Carolyn, can you tell us about the second misconception? Yeah. So the second misconception um, that you know, I've experienced in my work with, with educators and families is around this idea of how we actually learn to read words and, and from memory, right? How we remember words, how we store them. And there's this misconception sometimes that um, we memorize words, right? Especially irregular words. Mm-hmm. So a word like laugh, right? L-A-U-G-H. You know, you might tell a child like, oh, you just have to memorize it. English is so tricky. English is so irregular. There's this like memorization perspective out there, which leads to uh, looking at words as holes, as, as, as like that we memorize words as holes somehow. Lots of flashcards. Um, as flashcards. <laughs> yep. And, and the word shape method. Right. Um, and that's just a, a real misconception about how learning happens, how we store words in memory. Uh, it really happens through mapping, not memorizing. And by mapping, I mean, like we're mapping um, the specific letters to sounds or letter patterns to sounds. Right. That's what we see. We see that in, in all of the brain research, especially. Right. We talked about how we have no center for reading. We have to build this circuit. And if we look at how we build the circuit, what we're doing is we're connecting the visual form of the word, what you see with your vision perception, right, with your vision um, to, to sounds and then to meaning. So there's three primary areas of the brain. Lots of other areas of the brain that are involved. But these three primary areas that make up like the neural form of a word. Right. And that's what we mean by mapping. We're mapping a word's pronunciation, right, to the way that the letters are, to its letters, and to its meaning. Um, so and when you say mapping, real yeah. quick, that's literally mm-hmm. what's happening in our brain, like those things that you're talking about. You're connecting, like, the, the, there are neurons, right, that specialize for vision, to, for, to recognize faces and objects, right? Um, and so we're retuning those neurons, right, so that they recognize letters of a specific script and then can map those letters to a sound, right? That's the first level of mapping. We have to map these letters, these squiggles, lines, and dots, right? They don't mean anything. They're complete abstractions. They're, they're, they don't mean anything. We have to map them to sounds, right? And once we do that, we map, let's say, the S and the H, right, to sh and the I to I, and then pun, sh, ip. You've mapped the letters and sounds, but now you need to map that pronunciation and that letter sequence to something, to a ship, right? To what that means. Um, and now those three, those three representations, if you will, are, are connected. 
right? The what a ship is, how a ship sounds, and then uh, what the letters look like in sequence. Um, and the more you do that, right? We say the neurons that fire together wire together. The more that you connect those map or connect those three representations, um, the more that you're 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 beginning to store. It, it creates like a little neural address for that word, kind of. Um, in in what's eventually uh, Stanislas Dehaan calls the letter box. Is, is an area that we develop, experienced, ex- expert readers develop that um, is really specialized for recognizing words and letter sequences within words. But the first level of mapping is letter to sound or symbol to sound, right? And then we map the letter sequences to the pronunciation um, and the meaning. I'm curious about, because the goal of that is that it, that becomes so automatic, right? That you see ship and it's like, you don't even have to think about it, you know, the sounds, yep. you know, the yep. word, you know, everything very quickly. Yep. Is that where the misconception comes from about memorizing that it feels like we're memorizing it because it eventually becomes so quick? I think that I think that's right. I think I'm not sure exactly where the misconception comes from, but um, people have suggested that it comes from this idea of like the expert's blind spot. Right. Mm-hmm. So all of us are expert readers. We read with automaticity. We don't think about it. All of our cognitive energy can go towards meaning. Right. It's something we're doing. Um, and so for expert readers, we forget actually how, what our brain was like before we could read. Um, and it does feel to us that we're just, you know, memorizing the letter sequence. Um, but there's tons of studies to prove that that's not what we're doing. Um, although it was, it was an early misconception and early reading research as well. Um, but that's not what we're doing. We, we, we map, right. Even, even when part of a word is irregular, we're still mapping it. Yeah. It's like taking apart something that you can do so fluently to, to almost like try to break it down to be less fluent so that you could figure out how you got so fluent. It's like really an impossible task for an expert to do. It's really yes, hard. Yes, and people have written about it with um, musicians, right? Professional musicians who like don't remember what it was like before they could do. They can't describe what they do because it's so in their body and it's so automatic, right? And exactly, that's that's for, for readers. We have to like... we. We have to imagine what it's like to not have this skill, right, in order to understand how difficult it is. But the cool thing about our brains is that we have this capacity for automaticity. That's what I think is so amazing, right? Like, if you look at a script that you've never seen before, like, I, I do this with Korean, right? I, I don't, I can't read Korean, but if I look at something in Korean, it truly just looks like lines, just squiggles and lines to me, right? And it's amazing to me that you know, I could theoretically learn to read that so that it would add to it to a, to a place of automaticity. It's incredible. So we have this capacity for automaticity. Um, so then it feels like we've just memorized everything, but we haven't, we've mapped it. Right. And, and I think the power of understanding the mapping, uh, especially at the, at the letter level is like, uh, if you understand what our brain has to do, right. In order to recognize letters, it's pretty phenomenal. Because we're using an area of our brain, I think I mentioned before, that that is specialized for really recognizing faces and objects, right? Not letters. And so that's why we see things like mirror invariance, so, which is when kids confuse B and D and P and Q, right? That's evidence of the fact that they're using this part of their brain that recognizes objects. And when objects are flipped, they're still the same object, right? So we're, we're reusing this part of our brain that actually sees mirror images the same, Right. And we have to unlearn that in order to really acquire an uh, alphabetic literacy. Uh, so that's so neat. So what like what could parents and teachers do? Like what are the implications for parents and teachers listening in regards to memorizing versus mapping misconception? So much. OK, so first, um, when we think about uh, 
teaching kids letters and sounds, right? We want to make it meaningful. Um, and, you know, if you think of a W, there's no reason why a W, like the zigzag W, would say W, would make the W sound. There's no reason why when we want to write w, w, water, we would spell it with uh, a W because the D- D- W starts with D, right? And it doesn't, right? So there's no correlation, right? Um, and, uh, but when you use a method called embedded pictures or embedded picture mnemonics, and maybe you turn the W into a worm and a kid in, and the W is in the shape of a worm and a worm is in the shape of a W. I don't, it's visual, so I don't know if I'm making any sense, but um, then a kid looks at that, right? And they, they think w- w- worm. And so they associate the shape of the W with a w- w- worm. And that's an embedded, uh, embedded alphabet method um, that, is is really really beneficial for young children. Um, even more beneficial if the characters are engaging, right? And there's songs to go along with it, and and rhymes and handwriting. Yeah. Um, and uh, the program uh, that I like to use with preschools is called Letterland. Um, we've used that with a bunch of preschools. It's one embedded picture mnemonic method, um, but there are others. I know that um, Spellphabet has one online. Um, I think they're based out of Australia. Um, and it's just cards that have embedded embedded pictures in the alphabet. And so I guess my main takeaway here and why I spent a little time on it is that's what makes sort of uh, learning the alphabet can be fun, right? So we want to we wanna make this sort of abstract process. It's called paired associate learning when you're looking at a symbol and connecting it with a sound, right? We want to make that meaningful and fun. And one way to do that is by embedded, embedding pictures into the alphabetic symbols, I was just going to say, I see a lot of flags on those. So I think sometimes you have to be a cautious consumer, right? Of like, I've, I've seen one even where I'm, I'm not even making this up that the K example was a knight, like K N I G H T. And I was like, like, that is the worst example. There is not even a K sound in there (laughs) at all. Yeah. Um, So yeah, they're not all that bad but i know that some of them do right awesome. right of course of course just, of course and just so make sure letterland good ones. Is one that there's yes there's a bunch of research around letterland which is why um that's the one i always recommend um so yeah definitely uh conscious consumer and just because a letter is next to an object does not make it embedded right it actually has to be embedded in the letter's shape um if that makes sense yes. um and uh yeah. So the, the other thing I wanted to say about mapping, not memorizing, the implication of, of understanding that we're not memorizing, we're mapping is really for spelling. So with spelling, the only way to spell, right, is, to, is, is sequentially, right? Like left to right, taking it sound by sound. That, that really helps set up the mapping in our brain. And so over time, yes, it's going to become automatic, right? Your, your hand or your fingers on the type on the um, keyboard are going to become automatic with that, right? But um, if we understand that we're not actually just like memorizing the spellings of these strings, we're initially mapping them all to sounds and that mapping them to sounds really helps us set up those letter sequences in our brain. Um, then we'll, you know, I think people will pay more attention. I'm hoping people pay more attention to the role of dictation and the role of uh, handwriting um, because we know that sort of the motor area of our brain, um, I call it the handwriting hub, but the, the motor area of our brain, when we involve that area of our brain in, in learning to read, right, it really helps build the circuit more effectively. Yeah, I see this question a lot, too, that comes up where they, someone will say their student or their child 
you know, they can they can read, right? They seem like they're they're reading really well, they're decoding words, but then their spelling is really not great. And uh, the answer I always see, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, is like, well, they've memorized words then. And and mm-hmm. that's like, I mean, okay for right now, but that's going to be a problem in the long run. Exactly. And they, they must have very, they have very good visual memory, right? Not all kids have that kind of good visual memory if they, or sorry, they must not have very good visual memory, right? Kids who seem to pick up spelling, like you said, I think later, they have a strong visual memory, but some kids don't, right? And they really need to learn those, uh, those mappings really systematically. Yeah. Um, so, and I often say, you know, a lot, so there are some people that say, oh, my kid can read, they don't need kind of an explicit phonics. Um, but first of all, it's usually only 20, 30 minutes a day. Uh, it's not like the whole day. And, uh, second of all, it really helps them develop spelling pattern, like correct spelling. Um, so important, so important. And, and, and we should be careful because, you know, there's a, there's a different kind of continuum between, uh, spelling mastery of decodable words and spelling mastery of irregular words, right? It can take some kids very long, way past first grade right, to, to remember the sequence and map sort of irregular words like laugh or through, T-H-R-O-U-G-H, right? Um, but they will be able to recognize when they see them. They'll be able to read them but not spell them. But with decodable words, right, uh, that are multisyllabic, like napkin, right, we can master that much earlier than we can master a longer uh, irregular word for spelling. Carolyn, if, like what you just said, um, that kids might be able to read it, but not spell it as easily. For example, the word through like an irregular word. Can you say more about that? Like why that is? And as teachers or parents, is there anything we can do to help? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it is this, the, the, the research answer would be, well, the representation is not fully established, right. In their circuit. Right. So they can recognize it. Right. And they can ratchet to pronunciation and maybe they know the meaning. Right. But until you can like really spell the word and you've internalized the letter sequences and really tied these three representations together along with your motor memory, it hasn't been uh, fully established. Right. And I, I think it it probably goes back to the fact that recognition is much easier than production. Right. So in the same way that like receptive language, uh, it develops faster than um, expressive language. Right. Reception and sort of recognition of a word is much easier for like your memory than um, production and actually creating the letter string. But I don't think there's a name for that um, phenomenon when they can read it and not spell it. I think it's like the the representation isn't fully secure. All right, Carolyn, is there anything else you want to tell us about the second misconception before we move to the last one? Yeah, I think the one thing I would just add on this idea about we, we map words, we don't memorize them, right, um, is I want to emphasize that we're, we're really mapping the how a like letter, right, letter and letter strings to the sounds and to meaning, right? So when we're teaching early word reading and decoding, it's also important to talk about that meaning of the word, right? Decoding isn't just mapping, like set, blending sounds together, right? It is attaching to meaning. So there's a, a place, a very important place for vocabulary development and word knowledge within decoding instruction, right? So an, an early word, like CV, a CVC word, right? Pen, right? There's multiple meanings of pen, right? There's pen where animals are, there's pen you write with. Um, so there's ways to embed sort of multiple meaning and more advanced vocabulary work with decoding, even simple word, CVC words. Um, so I just want to make sure that, you know, with this emphasis on 
on decoding words, I just want to also emphasize that uh, the meaning of the words is important. We usually separate that vocabulary and comprehension like it's a totally separate bucket of work. But I mean, it's very, very basic (laughs) comprehension, but exactly, it is still comprehending that that one single word. What does it mean? Yes, we do want to map these words, right? Once we've read them, now map them to meaning. And that, that really helps secure the representation in our, in our brain, yeah. right? So we don't want to ignore the role of meaning in, in word level. Um, All right, the last misconception. Yeah, so the third misconception that, that I've observed is this idea kind of related to the, the misconception one, like that um, read, learning to read is natural, but it's this idea that like reading will click, right? It just kind of like clicks uh, without practice. Right. And so a lot of people say, oh, yeah, one day, you know, I I really think they'll just pick up the right book and be motivated and 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 it'll click. It'll all come together. This whole complex thing will come together. And it's sort of like this click and then like off away you go or something. Um, And that really undermines the role of practice. Um, So if we know that reading is not natural, if we know it's a mapping process and we need to do it to automaticity. Right. So we can free up our cognitive energy and our, our working memory for meaning then we know we have to get to we know we need practice in order to get to a place of mastery. And to think or believe or conceive of reading as something that's just like with the right book or the right teacher, it's just going to click, all come together, uh, really doesn't um, give proper sort of uh, attention to to the importance of building skills. And I think that sometimes that comes from this idea that like, oh, to focus on skills implies like you're doing some sort of drill and kill approach. Um, like you're drilling them and skilling them. And that's that's just killing the, the motivation and the meaning, right? And the joy. Um, and I prefer to think of it as like drill, skill, and thrill. Because the more that you embed practice, I mean, drilling is just practice. There's, there's what's wrong with practice, right? And so like the more that you practice, the more skills you're going to get and the more thrilling it's going to be for you to do this skill. And we can see that if you've ever seen a five or six-year-old learning to read, even if it's very simple words, it is thrilling. It is exciting. You can see them feeling that independence, right? Um, and a lot of times the, the way you can practice foundational skills, any skill really, but a lot of the foundational skills really lend themselves um, to very playful, engaging, dare I say thrilling um, practices, right? So there's a lot of phonemic awareness games where you play with sounds that are really, you know, can be very, very engaging and fun, to, uh, fun with kids. One I do with preschoolers and what I've been doing with my daughter is fiddle with the middle, right? Where I say, okay, we got to go put on our sacks right? We got to go put on our soups, right? Or no, no. Oh, you're right. And she says, socks, socks, right? And that's what I said. We have to go put on our seats, right? So I just keep changing that vowel, right? And it's just a, a quick fiddle with the middle game that you can play that kids love. And what it's doing is tune, tuning their, their ears into these medial vowel sounds. Um, so that's just one small example, right? Of, of how sort of we can build routines in, um, or the importance of building routines in because practice and routines are so important, um, because reading to mass, becoming a skilled reader requires lots of practice, right? And if we just believe it's going to click and it's not going to require the hours and hours of practice, then a lot of kids are not going to get to where they need to be. They're not going to reach automaticity because they're waiting for this click moment and it, it requires practice um, and, and a lot of um, repeated practice and, and, and gamification of practice and engaging. We, you know, there's ways to like, like get those dopamine hits while you're playing games related to building your, your foundational skills. 
Yeah, I love that you brought up like that this drill does get just a terrible connotation, you know, like, oh, people just use that word like, oh, you're just drilling kids. Um, But I love that you brought up that it just means practice and we need it. but then also it doesn't have to just be boring, right? That it doesn't have to just be worksheets. It doesn't, it, it shouldn't be necessary, especially no. for younger kids. Um, no, word games. Yeah. Word loving games. Look at Wordle. Do people still play Wordle? Isn't Wordle really popular? I mean, people love Wordle, right? Like they're playing with the sequences of words, right? As kids get older, that's a great, that's a great resource, right? Like just word games and sound games. It's, we, it, it actually can be a very fun and analytical um, process, um, you know, so and also, I also say one way, the best way to practice really early phonemic awareness um, and letter uh, recognition is, is, is early handwriting, right? And experimental spelling and encouraging young children um, to write using sounds. Um, and that's not drilling them, right? We're not having them copy books, right, onto paper. Um, we're not drilling them in any way or form, but we're, we're building in that practice, right? That practice to build this circuit that doesn't come uh, naturally, that we don't come wired with. Um, and one thing, go back to Ufly. One, one thing I love about, I mean, I love so many things about Ufly. One of the things I love is that they have the roll and reads for every single skill. They have these roll and reads um, where you roll a dice, you read a word. And I, I've been to classrooms where kids absolutely love playing this and they color it. I mean, they're not bored, right? Mm-hmm. And and when when I was working with dyslexic kids and who who need lots of practice at this, I mean, the only way to do the practice with them was games that were super engaging. Right. So um, we're it's it's practice. We need practice. It's not going to click. Yeah. Lori and I talk about this a lot that, you know, we we send kids to sports practices to do just this. Right. They dr- they do these drills yes. and such a good and point. they love it because they're getting better at it and they can see. I mean, again, my child's only four, but he does go to basketball practice and he can he sees that, you know, when he does this over and over and over again, and over, mm-hmm. he's getting better. And that. Yeah, is what's motivating is that he's like, now I'm making it in the hoop. <laughs> so I want to keep exactly, doing it. Exactly. And, it- and when you start to learn, it's the same exact thing. When you start to learn an instrument, you have to learn the scales, right? Like there's these just basic skills that we do drill. And, and we kind of want that in every other uh, skill that we practice automaticity. But somehow with reading this notion of of having to drill it and practice things, it, 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 it's it's become this like drill and kill and, and this awful sort of thing when it's exactly what we need yeah. and has to be reframed. I will say when I was in first grade, I remember doing worksheets. <laughs> and so I can see how it could have gotten a bad rap if that's all mm-hmm. you're doing is worksheets. <laughs> Again, right? There's a, I totally agree with you, but there's a there's a there's like a there's a certain amount of the day, right, devoted to this stuff. Um, and uh, it's like there there are not all worksheets are created equal. That's true too, <laughs> right? Um, there can be a really good worksheet, which is really just a very good exercise, right? It can also be a task on a tablet, right? There are just exercises, right? They're they're exercises, but I agree, we don't want to overdo it with just passive busy work. No one wants that right? Um, we want engagement, right? Without engagement, uh, that, I mean, this is something Stanislav Stahan has talked about and proven a lot in his work that like, we need the engagement without the engagement. We, we, we lose, the brain goes off track. Like that engagement is so important. So we need the drill and practice and yes, it needs to be engaging and, and active. Kids need to be actively involved in it, not passive, right? Like drill doesn't have to be passive. Maybe that's the you know, the, the way of framing it, I frame it as skill and thrill instead of drill and kill. Cause I like a good rhyme, but 
um, it really, it really needs to be reframed. Well, you've already given us several implications here for teachers, especially. Um, but is there anything else you want to share for, you know, what teachers can be doing in their classroom differently or? It, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, one area we haven't maybe covered as much is uh, what happens with the multilingual or the, the bilingual brain um, as it as it's learning to read. So I just want to add, you know, what we know is that it's good. It's a very good thing for us to engage, right? Our bilingual brains, we're all capable of learning more than one language. Um, and it really has many benefits, right? Um, and we know that the importance is the development of spoken language, right? So when we were talking about building the circuit, um, you know, the, the reading circuit is built on top of the spoken language circuit. Right. So we have the spoken language circuit and the best thing we can do early on, right, is build our areas for spoken language because the reading circuit is, is literally like built on top of it. Um, and so building spoken language, building vocabulary um, is so, so important for all learners, but especially for multilingual learners. Right. Because the, the strength in one spoken language transfers to another. And we just really want to make that circuit so, so strong. Um, and it, it's founded in, in spoken language. And I think that that connects to um, something I've seen in the upper grades and, and middle grades um, around uh, comprehension. So, uh, you know, I've seen this idea from some people that like comprehension is just about skills. Right. It's about finding the main idea. It's about inferencing. Um, and we know actually from a lot of the cognitive science and research on comprehension um, that actually it, it, it's grounded in knowledge, right, and conceptual knowledge. Um, and we really need to build knowledge uh, to build comprehension um, and, and not just think of it as just like a skill activity. And so I think that really ties into uh, what we're I'm sort of saying about multilingual learners and bilingual learners, that we really need to ground our lessons, not just in skills, but in, in knowledge, which inevitably, you know, includes vocabulary and doing it in all those structured, engaging ways. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, at the beginning, we kind of said reading is so different from speaking, right? But but they do really tie together and <laughs> it's really important that they that they come together. So important. Yes, that's such a good point. Like it's, yeah, like reading does not develop like speaking, but it's dependent on spoken language. Reading is absolutely dependent on our spoken language. You can't read unless you have a spoken language base, but totally there. But they, at the same time, they don't develop in the same way. Yeah. I think that's a really important distinction. And this also. knowledge building that you're bringing up can actually start even through just spoken language from when they're really young. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And there's kids get so engaged. We all do, right? Because we're people that we're meaning making people, but kids get so engaged in knowledge, right? So engaged in learning about all the different kinds of snakes or where snakes live, what snakes eat. Like there's, there's knowledge is very engaging um, and, and helps us build our conceptual knowledge and our spoken language network. Um, so when I think, you know, when people think of the science of reading, it's not just foundational skills, right? It's the, it's the importance of how we build comprehension and textual understanding. And so much of that comes from knowledge building and, and building concept knowledge. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of wild how much young kids can take in. Um, like I said, my four-year-old, sometimes it's silly stuff like Hot Wheels. I mean, he knows all these names of all these Hot Wheels, but then sometimes I'm like thinking, 
you know, one of the Hot Wheels is called Mohawk Warrior. And now he knows what a Mohawk is. Like, that's like, (laughs) I mean, it's kind of silly. But at the same time, like, he's building some knowledge there about the world. Yeah. That he And a whole memory network. Yeah. You know, he's really building. I mean, he does some serious things, too, not just Hot Wheels. But that is his thing at the moment. (laughs) Yeah. Is he classifying them? Oh, I don't know. That's That's the next step. Thank you for that pointer. You know? Yeah, grouping them together. It's when you know, when kids are in that phase that it's like uh, in the collecting, collecting phase, mm-hmm. right? Having a lot of one thing, then organizing it. I mean, not again. Don't push it if your kid is like like my daughter, who's like, no, I will not be organizing them. Any little minor task, extra task, I know. But um, but if some kids do like sorting and organizing, and it's good. I love that. It's good practice. <laughs> well. Before we go, I just want to ask you, you know, this was a really big topic. We just hit on some misconceptions today. I'm sure there's a million more things we could have asked you about the brain and how it learns to read. But do you have any suggestions for where people could learn more? Yeah. um, So I I have a a newsletter. Um, You can sign up for that on my website. It's just carolynstrom.com or you can email me at hello at carolynstrom.com. I believe there's uh, still a poster on on the website of sort of uh, my conception of the brain. Um, I'm working on a longer piece about it. Um, But if you're curious in general about um, sort of more, I I really recommend uh, Stanislas Dehaan's work, Reading in the Brain. Um, He's an amazing writer, an amazing researcher, and is really the pioneer in the field, along with work of Marianne Wolf. I'm sure people have talked about her book on here before, Proust and the Squid. Um, Sally Shaywitz's Overcoming Dyslexia, also a great and accessible book about, about the brain, um, all sort of talking about uh, the, the concepts we, we spoke about today. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful information with us today. We're so thankful. Thank you for hosting this great podcast. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.